Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. We have been talking about what is the gospel according to Jesus? What is the good news that has been proclaimed from the beginning to the end? What's the story that we're shaping this community around? How do we formulate the gospel? Well, first, it's not a set of propositions. It's not a set of facts. It's not um, a list. It's not even, um, it's not the simple ways that we have boiled down the story of God into something to grab hold of. The gospel, the good news is itself a story. It has a beginning and it has an end that is no end, which is interesting. It has, a, it has a purpose for being told. You guys ever hang out with a five-year-old? They tell you stories that don't have a purpose. Most of my day is my kids trying to stop me from doing something I'm doing to tell me a story that has no purpose at all. That's just my life. And, and that's a lot of the stories in the world we just tell just to explore, just to, to, to feel our way through the world. But the gospel story itself has this incredible purpose. It's to give us eyes to see. Jesus came so that we would see what's really happening, so that we would open up our eyes and view beyond the material world that we live in and ask the deeper, bigger questions. Where do we come from and where are we going? The gospel is the story that gives us the narrative so that we know our place in it, so that we know what part we are to play, so that we know where we're at in the story. The gospel is, is, is the most important story that will ever be told. And it tells us something about us. It tells us who we are. It tells us who we belong to. It tells us who we're aligned or, or who we've given our allegiance to. The story tells us about God, who is the hero of the story, who is himself doing the work to make the story move along. And it tells us about the setting, this world that we live in, what it's like, what it was meant for, how it's broken, and, and what it's meant to be one day. And it's good news because it speaks to the triumph of God over our enemies. This is the important work of the gospel is to remember that we're not stuck. Because this world is kind of, at times, feels pretty awful. I don't need to get an amen on that. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> this world itself, for all the beauty and the untold pleasure and incredible things about it has this dark side that gnaws away at us, that takes away our joy, that robs us of the connection that we desire. 
between us and God and between us and one another. And the story is good news because there is a way that God himself is going to set all things right. He's going to make things the way they are. But the gospel story, it starts with some assumptions, and we need to, I I think we need to say them out loud so that we know what kind of story that we're trying to tell. we, We assume and we know and we've experienced the world is broken and it needs saving. Anybody in disagreement? Can I put that one on the whiteboard? The world's broken. It needs saving. Okay, we got that. Um, we are in this world, and we need saving from it. Can I write the anybody? You're, everybody feels that? Okay, we'll get that one up there. We are in the world, and we need saving. We are a part of the systems of this world, and the world needs saving from us. Let that sink in. We are a part of the systems of this world, and the world needs saving from us. We all are participants. We are perpetrators in the evil that makes the world the broken place that it is. And here's the last assumption that makes the gospel make sense to us. If we ache that this world might become something more, if we ache that the world may be saved or fixed, there must be some reality in which it's true. Because every ache that I have in my body, there's some sort of correlated like way to fulfill that in the world. C.S. Lewis said, I, I believe in God because I ache for him. And just like I ache for food and there is food in the world and just like I ache for intimacy and there's intimacy in the world and just like I I desire things they must there must be some corollary out in the world because desires don't come from nowhere and honestly even even if you don't believe in a creator desire comes from something we're always making sense of like we are in, in a sense as humans we're like desire machines that we, we desire more than we're able to to even take in, but desires always correlate to something. And so this desire that we have to see things set right in the world tells us that there must be some way that it could be set right. Or else we're in this futile work of just hoping beyond hope that something could happen. The gospel is good because it answers our deepest, saddest, most broken needs to be whole, to be safe, and to be held by our creator for some purpose beyond this life and beyond the death that waits us. It's good news because there is future and there is hope. Um, My brother and his kids were with us last week. They have a 16-year-old. And Theo and him were hanging out at the soccer fields. And Theo's my 7-year-old. And he he asked his his 16-year-old cousin, he said, do you ever think about, like, how... When we die, it's just kind of nothingness out there. And that will just kind of become a part of the cosmos. <laughs> and, and, and Caleb's like, what are you talking about, man? Like, the answer is, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about it until you said it. Like, that's, that's what Theo was bringing existential dread everywhere he goes. So when he tells your kids, hey, have you ever thought about, the answer is they're going to start thinking about it. Um, and I, I remember doing that when I was seven, eight, nine. I, I would just lay in bed thinking about how it was going to be to die. Like I was, maybe it was morbid, maybe it was just a normal kind of little kid existential dread. 
but existential dread is real. It's what we all face. And what nobody tells you is that as you reach middle age, it becomes this wall that you have to face through. You've got to look and watch as your friends and family die and suffer around you. And you have to look at existential dread and you have to ask deeper and deeper questions about what am I, where do I come from, and what's going to happen to me. And if, until you settle those questions, the dread is going to get a fever pitch. And today is all about that. And it's, it's, an, it's a really old question. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can pull them out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so 1 Corinthians is probably the oldest book in the Bible in the New Testament, okay? It was written, we think, in the 40s or the 50s. So within about a decade of Jesus' ministry, Paul writes this letter to Corinth to help them figure out some messed up parts about what they're doing. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the oldest formulation we have. And we're going here because it's the first place that we have the earliest followers of Jesus wrestling with who is Jesus, what is the gospel story, and what are the important parts versus the unimportant parts. Um, Karl Barth, who is a 20th century theologian, he, he says this about the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, it forms not only the close and crown of the whole epistle, but also provides the key to its meaning from which light is shed onto the whole and it becomes unintelligible and becomes intelligible as a unity. What he says is that the whole of 1 Corinthians sits on this chapter, and it's the very first time we have the gospel written out for us. So here we go. First Corinthians, yeah, I gotta, I gotta be honest, this is a freaking weird chapter, okay? So I just wanna like, everybody get their, get their seatbelts on, buckle them up. We're taking a wild ride through some weird first century stuff. I promise some of it will make sense, some of it won't, but we're going to read through the whole thing, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and then we're going to dive in, all right? Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. Remember what I told you. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this gospel, this good news that saves you if you continue to believe that the message that I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I, I love that little side. It's like, unless you really didn't believe it in the first place, which I don't know what to do with you then. But if you believed it and you held on to it, let's talk. I passed on to you what was the most important thing and what had been passed on to me. He's, he's centering what he's saying. And I heard this from Jesus and his apostles. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And when he says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's pointing back and saying, just like they prophesied before, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. He was seen by Peter. This is a guy who was still known and writing letters. And then by the twelve still alive. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have died. <laughs> I like that. He's like, well, you know, some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, 
I also saw him, for I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worried to be worthy to be called a missionary after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, not without results, for I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. For we all preach the same message that you've already believed. But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then everything we've said is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have all said that God raised Christ from the dead. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all those who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Jesus was raised as the first of the harvest. And then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And after that, then the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things under his authority, that, that does not include God the Father himself who gave Christ his authority. And then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. If the dead will not be raised what point is there in, being, in people being baptized for those who are dead? I told you it was getting weird. Uh, why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, these people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection, well, <laughs> this is not a recommendation, okay? Let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. But someone might ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. I got to disagree with Paul on that one. 
Like, I, I feel like we're, like, this is the real question, Paul, and he's calling him fools for asking. Paul, you're a little bit tough there. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. And then God gives it the new body that he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed, and similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, one kind for animals, another for, for birds, another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different than the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind, and even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. And the scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, he came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and the heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of the eye, when that last trumpet is blown. Or when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and through death through our Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's cool and it's weird, right? I like it. Um, what, what surprised you when we were reading that? What had you never engaged with before? What questions does it bring up in you? This is time for you to talk. I got some raised eyebrows. I don't know. I want, I want to know what's going on in those heads. Yeah, the bit about like the earthly bodies versus the spiritual bodies. Yeah. It's a bit weird. 
Yeah, we'll talk about that. What else is just like rattling around in your head as you're reading this passage? Yeah, there's like this the hierarchy of the kinds and types of glories that happen with earthly bodies and heavenly bodies and the sun, the moon, the stars, animals, fish, birds, humans. Yeah, it's weird, man. Did you both say the same thing? Yeah. yeah. Baptizing for the dead. I, I mean, it's not even like this... Uh, it's not a throwaway line. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Like it's, it's an assumption in the first century that they were being baptized for the dead. That's pretty complex because we don't do that. And I, I was sitting next to a lady on a plane this week that was this sweet little Mormon grandma telling me all about the work she's doing to get baptized for the dead. And I'm like, oh, that's weird, man. Like I, I don't know what to do with it, but it's right there. Yeah. Any anything else that just struck you as you're reading that? Yeah, Amy. Yeah, what's what's this trumpet bit? How do you know it's the last, you know, when the trumpets sound, that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are hitting all the weird stuff. It's, but I got to be honest, like in the first century, this made a lot of sense to them. Like this, this was this was what Paul he was thinking about his friends in Corinth. He's like, oh, okay, I know what they're worried about. And then he wrote this letter. <laughs> he's he's like, this will help them. And so we we got to do a little unpacking. So let's let's start by this. Um, our, our gospel, the way that we talk about gospel in our culture, it's boiled down to a really a really simplified message because we know that people are dumb. We have made the gospel super dumb and made it as like simple as humanly possible so that we could grab hold of it. And in some ways, like, listen, I run a marketing firm. I get it. It makes sense to make it dumb, treat them dumb so that you get them to do dumb things. Like, it, it makes sense. But... Uh, and, and, and how we've dumbed that down is sin leads to death. Jesus leads to life through the cross. Like we've just kind of like simplified the whole thing down to we're dead unless we have Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross so we get life. We've just made everything about this like little thing. But in doing that simplification, we've missed out on the rich tapestry of the narrative that's unfolding in Scripture. Many of these narratives of, of how to be saved or arguments for believing in God, these simple expressions of the gospel, I think in, in a lot of ways are missing this key understanding. Um, and it's be, so this, this, was, this was what the gospel sounded like in the first century, this, this picture of resurrection. Resurrection was the hope of the gospel, this new life that was coming. And we live in an era of kind of the anti-supernatural. We have uh, demythologized and demysticized all of all of spirituality into something that's a very um, human, 
physical, material story. And so we don't like talking about the great hereafter, and we don't like talking about what happens with our bodies in this earth and a resurrection of the dead, because it's weird to the modern scientific post-enlightenment age that thinks about things in tautologies and epistemologies, and we focus on these philosophical principles that keep us in line. But in the first century, in, in some ways, they were very similar, but their spirituality was different. So in the first century, very few people believed in an afterlife. Did you know that? Like among the Greeks, they basically, um, between the Epicureans and the Stoics, these two schools of philosophy, they had, they had kind of told everybody that um, e there's two directions to go. Either you seek pleasure in this life because there's nothing beyond it, and if you seek pleasure, then you will have fulfilled your role in this earth, which is to maximize your ability to enjoy it. Okay? That was the Epicurean way. And actually, even in this passage, Paul quotes an Epicurean maxim. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's an Epicurean philosophy from the first century. And then the Stoics kind of went the opposite way. And they said, if you deny yourself, then you will experience truth and wisdom, and it will bring flourishing to you and the people around you. And so it was really this, this movement of, of wisdom and of... Uh, an ascetic kind of view. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not seek pleasure so that I could, so that I can have wisdom. But both of those are predicated on this world is all that we have. This is all that there is. And in the first century, even among the Jews, you remember the Sadducees, that sect of Jews that Jesus was in conversation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They believed that they would die and that nothing would happen and that their work was to help create a way for future generations to experience God's kingdom when the Messiah comes. So they saw it as a very human, fleshly, physical, worldly thing. There was no afterlife. And so in some ways, this claim of Jesus that there is something beyond this life is itself the radical story of the gospel that this life is not the only life there is, but it's just the precursor to the life that we were meant to have. This is, this is just such a, such a massive passage, but until you understand that he's actually trying to convince them that there is a resurrection, it doesn't make sense. And I think that in, in our modern Western minds, what we've done is we've said, it'd be nice if there was a resurrection out there. And I, I hope it's true, and I have no way of knowing but it'd be nice if that were true. And Jesus seems like he would know the way. And so I'm going to kind of, do you do that in your head where you, you kind of, you de-risk it by saying, I'm going to, I think this is the right way. And, and if it is good, if not, I lived a good life. Have you ever, it's okay if you've thought that. I've, I've thought that. I've worked through, if, if Jesus isn't real, then I still get the benefits of walking in his kingdom in this world. And if he is real, isn't that great that I, I get, you know, the coming life? But for the first followers of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead was the essential good news. Do you get that? That this world is not the only thing that we're living for. And when I say that, that's even something we probably shouldn't say because the picture that we get from this passage is that our bodies will be raised to life for the age that's to come on this planet. 
there's going to be this setting of all things right. The kingdom of God, we have this vision in Revelation 20 of heaven and earth coming together into one experience where God's presence will be felt throughout all of creation and the people of God will enjoy his presence forever in our resurrected bodies. And so the dead will be raised to new life here where God's kingdom will reign in its fullness. Now that's really good news because all the pain and all the suffering and all the brokenness of this world, the stuff that takes away our hope and steals us from life with God, that's what's going to go away. We're going to experience the presence of God. And why can we believe that? Fundamentally, we trust that these 500 people who staked their lives on Jesus' resurrection, these 12 apostles who died for the sake of it, those who witnessed it with their very eyes said, I'm going to put my hope in Jesus because he's the only one who knows the way to life. He's the only one who can take us where we're hoping to go. The resurrection itself is the good news. How much? Scale from 1 to 10. Just give me, give me some fingers. Scale from 1 to 10. All right. This is, this is simple. How, how much have you thought about the resurrection? One is I never think about it. Ten, it's on my mind regularly. Give me some fingers. Everyone's hedging between four and seven. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I like that. It's a little, little flash. Um, why do you think about it? Like, what, what, what do you think about the resurrection, and why do you think about it? Like, what, what brings it up in your mind? Yeah. Yeah, you did it. You did a funeral for a three-year-old a couple years ago, and that you have to. You've got to. You've got to know what you think, because you don't. You don't want to just tell a family, "Oh, it's going to be fine. He's with Jesus," and you also don't want to say, "Oh, I hope there's something." There's no hope at all. You have. You have to get real serious about that. Absolutely. What what is the resurrection like? What 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 sparks that question in you when you think about it? Say that again. Yeah, most of the people around us don't know a way to life. They don't know the way to eternal life, and they haven't found hope in Christ. And we think about how can we help them discover it. We worry about what they're going to experience if they don't experience God. Absolutely. In some ways, like this is the fundamental question of existence. What is next? And in light of what's next, what should I do with this life that's been entrusted to me? This is the good news. This is not the end, not even close. It's just the beginning of what's going to come. We see in Jesus's life and teachings that he taught us what it was like to live in the kingdom. 
That's what he was, that's why he came and lived his life was to show us this is what it's like. These are the kinds of things that you do in the kingdom. He tells people that everybody belongs. He tells us that the last will be first and the first will be last. He tells us that those who seek power, who seek authority over others and over God, won't have a place in the kingdom of God. We're told that there is an ultimate kind of justice where all things will be set right. Jesus is showing us that when we follow him, we experience the kind of kingdom that we're looking for. He showed us what it's like, not just, he didn't teach us about it. He actually like showed us what it's like to live in the resurrection. That's why he healed bodies. That's why he laid hands on people was to say, the kingdom of God is coming in power and this is what it's like. These bodies, these mortal bodies no longer have the defects of this world or no longer tainted by the environmental factors that bring death, no longer tainted by the DNA replication that doesn't work. He touches them and they experience transformation, healing. He tells them that the kingdom of God is like your enemies being vanquished, freed from the empire that wants to suppress you. He teaches us that we don't need fear because God himself is with us. He showed us what it's like to live completely trusting the Father for all things so that you didn't need anxiety or fear. We've, we've developed anxiety and fear as a way to deal with the unpredictability of this world, as a way to focus our minds so that we can overcome the sin and death that's raging around us. But in Jesus, there was no anxiety, there was no fear because he lived completely settled in the presence and safety of the King of all creation. He showed us that when we're worried about how much we have, when we've got five loaves and a couple of fish, he shows that the kingdom of God has this abundant kind of provision, this overwhelming abundance of everything you need is right here. Did you know that the earth produces plenty of food for everybody on it? An, an abundance of food. We misallocate it. Much of it gets thrown away and it's put in the wrong places. But this earth produces more than enough abundantly for all of creation. And that's what it's like to live in God's kingdom is to have what we need. And instead of stealing and killing and destroying to get what we need, we can open-handedly open give away what we have. Jesus showed us that the kingdom of God comes with restored relationships. Because when we live in right relationship with the Father, there is peace and shalom between humans. He showed us that intimacy, perfect fellowship with God comes with the kingdom. In, in, in all of the ways that the world drives us to evil and the ways that our, our bodies and minds and, and beings on earth acquiesce to the brokenness of this world, all those are going to be removed. And all who bow to the king and pledge allegiance will belong in this new resurrected kingdom. This is the good news is that those who bow at the feet of Jesus have a place and belong with him. Now, all this, like when we just pull back one step, it seems super weird, but this is the center of the gospel is that there is a resurrection. God himself is making a way for us. And if you want it, all you got to do is give in to him and let him be Lord and King over all of your life. But there's a corollary to that that we have to take. And it's those who rebel 
There will be some who stand in the face of Jesus in all of his glory. He will have taken all of creation and set it under his feet. And they will look at the king of all creation and say, no, I will not give you my allegiance. Some of you in this room are going to stand before God and say, I'd rather have my death than have life under you. And the king of all creation isn't going to say, no, you'll do it because I said so. He's going to say, have your way. And he's going to let those who say, I don't want you, those who rebel, they're going to be cast out because there's no longer going to be a battle on earth over who's king and who's not. It's all those who pledge allegiance to the way of the king, all those who live in the way of the kingdom, all those who have submitted to become kingdom people will enjoy his presence forever. And all those who reject him will say, I'd rather have the outer darkness than to experience the life of God. That's the part that shouldn't make sense to us. The resurrection is the natural outcome of this deep desire in us for all things to be made right. And so fear not, my friends. Jesus, the creator of all things, maker of heaven and earth, who saw your suffering, who saw your pain, who saw the death and the destruction that our sin caused, said, I will not stand for it. And the king himself said, I will come and be destroyed on your behalf. I will take on the pain and sin of your death. I will let my body be crushed so that yours might be raised to life. He said, for all the shameful things that you've done, all the ways that you've dishonored me and dishonored your families, all the ways that you have brought sin and death to this world, we're going to take, he's going to take on our sin and our shame, and he's going to be despised by all creation because of the evil that we've done. And he said, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be forsaken by God, cast out of my Father's presence so that you and I might be brought into his presence. He's going to experience the death, this physical death, this excruciating death of the death on the cross so that the resurrection life might be available to you and to me. And so we say, that's the guy I want to follow. To death, through death, to life, to experience God's presence and God's power day in and day out. Where else are you going to find life, friends? Who else is offering you the kind of resurrection power of Jesus? Who else is saying that there's hope out there? Who else is saying that things will and can be set right? Who else has a way to overcome your sin and your death and your shame? There's no other way but through the King who made a way. And so friends, let's put our hope in the resurrection. Let's live today in the resurrection power of Jesus that comes now in part through the Spirit's presence in our lives. Comes now in part by our healing hands laid on one another. 
that comes now in part by the abundance provision of God that we give away to one another, that comes now in part as we seek justice for our friends and flourishing for our communities, that comes now in part as we proclaim to the world that God will set things right and invite them to say one day in the new Jerusalem, the king will come in power. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, The resurrection is a secondary thought in my life, but it should be primary. This is the hope of the gospel, that there is a way to the life that comes forever, the life that comes with its fullness, with your presence, with freedom from sin and death and shame and guilt and sin. We want you, Lord. We want all of you, and we want right now to bow to bow our heads in allegiance saying that there is one King and there is one God and He is the Lord and authority over our lives. Have your way, Lord Jesus, on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom to earth as we seek you. May your presence be made known to all people as we become kingdom people. May our lives be little embassies of the safety and presence of God. May you unleash your abundance on the world through our generosity. May we set aside the ways of evil and the ways of this world. May we deny our flesh its power over us so that we might experience you more each day. May we look to the resurrection and say there is good news for everyone who believes. And so we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that Christ raised him from the dead. And we open our hands to receive the salvation that you offer. Lord Jesus, have your way here in Boise, here at Redemption Hill, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we receive communion, communion is just a way of saying this is the beginning of the resurrection comes at the cost of Jesus' death. His body broken is a perfect substitute for you. His blood shed is the way that we're cleansed from sin and we have a way to resurrected life. There's no other way but participation in the table. So come forward and receive the, the elements. Receive them yourself, take them back and, and pray and take them yourself and then join in worship this morning. Lord God, may this table represent all that you've promised. Resurrection life that comes from your sacrifice and your example and your kingdom come by your death and resurrection. May you as the first among us show us the way to the kingdom of resurrected life. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.